0: Welcome to Marketing Thought Leadership, the podcast that offers insightful discussions on thought-provoking marketing topics. Here's the host of our show, marketing consultant, speaker, author, and educator, and the president of L2M Associates, Linda Popke. Hi,
1: this is Linda Popke, and welcome to our latest episode of Marketing Thought Leadership. We're here today with Tom Kolopoulos, Tom is the chairman of the Boston-based global innovation think tank Delphi Group, which was named one of the fastest-growing private companies in the U.S. by Inc. magazine. He's also the author of 12 books, a columnist for Inc., an adjunct professor at Boston University Graduate School of Management, which is my alma mater. He's been an executive resident at Bentley, and he's also in the past been the executive director of the Batson College Center for Business Innovation and executive director of the Dell Innovation Lab. Uh, His most recent book that we're going to talk about today is called The Bottomless Cloud, How AI, the Next Generation of the Cloud, and Abundance Thinking Will Radically Transform the Way You Do Business. Uh, And before we get started, just wanted to say a lot of people have spoken about Tom. Tom Peters called his writing a brilliant vision of where we must take our enterprises to survive and thrive. And the late Peter Drucker says his writing makes you question not only the way you run your business, but the way you run yourself. So on that note, uh welcome Tom. Glad to have you here.
0: Hey Linda, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Great. So you you've written about you've written a number of books about cloud and you've written about um uh cloud surfing and, and a number of different things and now we're talking about AI and AI's kind of got this uh, this great potential but it's also scaring people. Some people are really afraid of AI. So uh, even Elon Musk of, of Tesla fame, he calls AI the immortal dictator. So you say it's a necessary tool without which we can't survive. Talk to me about how you see AI and how does that relate to what these other folks are saying.
0: The, the, so first of all, you're, you're right. There's a lot of fear-mongering going on, um, and we hear it from very prominent individuals like Elon Musk. And, look, I think we should keep our eyes wide open whenever we're dealing with any new technology. But where we often get you know, sort of wrapped around the axle is that we, we see the reasons – why the technology will be disruptive, why it might be painful, why it will create uh, changes that aren't necessarily pleasant in the short term. And what we don't see are the longer-term benefits. And it doesn't matter what technology you pick. We can go back to splitting the atom. There was devastating effects, enormous suffering caused by that technology. But what we don't talk about as often is the enormous benefit to society as a result. You know, Nuclear medicine has saved countless lives. And that wouldn't have existed if we didn't have that technology. So it's always easy when you're at the precipice of any great change to see the fear, the the terror, and to sell that to people. Uh, It sells well, it makes the headlines and the front page easily, but it tells only a small piece of the story. And longer term, AI, I think, is going to have advantages, as you said, that will fundamentally enable us to survive in a world of 10 billion people. I mean, how do you feed, educate, care for 10 billion people? As it stands today, I think we're barely doing that for maybe 3 billion people, of the seven that are on the planet. Uh, So there are small things that we'll be doing, Linda, such as giving people individual identities through blockchain technology, identifying ways that we can diagnose and care for illnesses uh, using the human genome rather than invasive medicine. All of these will have enormous impact, and every one of them will, at its core, have this fundamental component, of AI to help us uh, scale uh, some of the services that today, unfortunately, we simply can't provide to the the entire world. And by the way, this isn't just a third world issue, right? I think it has enormous benefit for us in the first world as well. Uh, We will uh, crumble under the enormous weight of our healthcare system. I think AI is going to be necessary to help us with those kinds of problems. So generally speaking, AI is a survival mechanism that we desperately need to be able to get through the next 50 to 100 years.
1: And that sounds wonderful, Uh, and it sounds like, gee, here's our solution. But let's go back a second. I've been involved in the computer industry for a number of years, and I remember what we called AI was – we called it expert systems, and there were things that we called AI 20, 30 years ago that today are on your cell phone and your your mobile device and your wearable technology and you don't even think about. So how do you define AI and – How is it – it's almost like AI to me is is the technology that's in the future, but it's not quite here yet. And then once we have it, then there's going to be something else that's AI. How how do you see that?
0: Yeah, in some ways, AI is kind of like flying cars, right? We've been promised it for so long. We've talked about it. It's been in science fiction. It's been in popular culture for at least the last 60 years in one form or another. And you're right, we've called it many different things. So the question that I always get asked, and I think it's what you're getting at here is, so what makes now any different? You know, is AI a distant future? Is it another 50 to 60 years? What makes this moment in time different? And there are at least two things that make it uh, extraordinarily different. The first is that we finally have enough computing power to actually create the sort of uh, uh, comprehensive uh, networks and algorithms that are needed. To process these basic mathematical and statistical and probabilistic concepts that have been around for the last 50 to 60 years, so we didn't have the brute force. The sheer computing power wasn't there through which to enable these algorithms. The second thing is that uh, we didn't have enough data. AI mm. needs data. It, 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 you know, it has this voracious appetite for data, and we simply didn't have enough data. Not just transactional data, not just data that you capture at the cash register, right? But, but data about uh, contextual behaviors and and awareness of, of, of situations. That wasn't there. We didn't have the sensors in the field. We didn't have the web to capture human behaviors. And all this data is now being captured and can be used to feed AI and enable it to use these very sophisticated, powerful algorithms to predict the future. That's ultimately what AI is. When I get asked what's AI, there are two conventional ways to answer that, right? One is AI does what otherwise a human being would be required to do, to make a decision, a cognitive capability that otherwise would be the domain purely of the human. Um, right. The second way to, to answer it, I think the better way to answer it, and I think it's the piece that often gets left out of the equation, AI is a tool by which we predict the future. Now, it could be a two-second in the, in the future future, or it could be a you know a two-year in the future future, but it enables us to understand trends, probabilities, behaviors, in such a way that we can predict what's going to happen next. And that's a critical uh, capability when you're simulating biological systems, when you're simulating consumer behavior. Virtually everything we have in our world today is so complex and sophisticated that we need simulation to understand how we address it, how we solve that problem, address that challenge. And fundamentally, that is becoming the, the role, the job of AI. But because we have the power and the volumes of data to enable that and allow that to happen.
1: And and I love that definition, the second one, because it really does say, gee, if we have this and this, what will happen? And if I think about medical cases, if we look at all of the possibilities to treat a particular type of cancer, if we use this chemotherapy and we add this drug and given that you have this gene, here's what the likely result is so we can tailor your your experience or tailor your treatment to, to be better. And all of that is good. And then there's the other side where we have companies like Facebook, which have come under a lot of scrutiny lately because they're capturing our behavior and they're sharing our behavior and there's fake news and Russian trolls and have they influenced the election. So that's a little bit scary. How do you kind of reconcile that with all the good things that AI could do?
0: Yeah, look, so so the, the last thing I want to do is discount what you just described. It's a very real threat to us personally, nationally, globally, the, the specter of, of whether it's a Facebook or some other entity, gathering information about you, about me, about us, and then using that information to, to manipulate uh, the way I think, the way I act, the way I behave, uh, is something that I, I, I loathe we should all loathe, then we should be very cognizant of the fact that this is part of the landscape we are now entering. But let's back off a bit, because number one, I'll go back to what I said earlier. Uh, don't. I would never ask you to ignore that or discount it. However, I I would ask you to think about. Uh, ultimately, it's the net positive of any new technology that enables us to justify keeping it around. So let's go. Let's use an example here. GPS. Mm-hmm. Right. We all have today on our person, twenty four seven, a device that will that will geo us and geotag us. You know, we're, we're tracked right. like endangered wildlife. You know, but we've become accustomed to that and we joke mm-hmm. about it. But the reality is. It's tough to pry that away from someone. I don't think anyone, you know, a parent, doesn't want you to to take GPS away from his or her child because that right. provides a measure of safety. There's a measure of convenience. There's a there's a there's an element of of security in knowing that I'll always get to my destination because my GPS will get me there definitively. And we've given up privacy to do that. So going back to what you were saying about Facebook, I'm giving up privacy now in much the same way. The question is not, am I giving up privacy? And assuming that it's protected, and we can come back to the protection issue in a minute, but am I giving it up for commensurate or greater value? That ultimately is the question. And right now, with social media, I'm not sure we can make that assessment. I'm not sure the value is greater than what I'm giving up. Uh, and we can do econ- economic analysis and say, well, you know, based on Facebook's market capitalization, uh, my data is worth about two to $300 to them. That's a very weak argument. Um, right so i right. 'm getting free software i 'm getting free software that i 'd otherwise have to pay for right that 's the argument that you get um, that 's a weak argument look the reality is it 's going to take some time until we really surface that value. However, going back to your earlier point what 's happening in the interim is that that behavioral data is being abused uh, and not necessarily by Facebook you know the Cambridge mm-hmm. analytical scandal was not because of Facebook but because you it's were able problem. to do things with right with yeah. facebook 's data the part were able to manipulate it. So where we have to be careful, I think, is in establishing a new contract, if you will. It's a social contract as well as a contract with the organizations that we do business with. And it's a legal contract as well that we have to look at from a legislative standpoint that does provide mechanisms through which we can maintain ownership over our identity and then how that behavioral data that's attached to our identity is used. That is simply not there today. So we will see, I have no doubt, we'll see a lot more. Of the, uh, uh, the Facebook lightning rod effect where it draws our attention to the risks uh, of, of this new technology. But I, I, I have no doubt that within five years' time at most, that value proposition I was talking about will make itself much more obvious. And I can, you know, we can talk about this if you'd like, but I can come up with examples and scenarios of, of what that might look like. But the reality is a lot of that value will come in ways that we don't know. You know, we, we, right. we thought we'd have flying cars today, but none of us thought we'd have <laughs> iPhones, you know, 20 years right. ago. Right, which are better than flying uh,
1: cars in many ways, yeah.
0: Exactly, precisely, yeah. right? We, want, we wanted the Star Trek, uh, you know, transporter, the teleporter. We didn't get that, but we got an iPhone, which is actually pretty darn good. I can teleport myself right. anywhere in the world uh, through, you know, through, through FaceTime and uh, other, you, know, you know, mechanisms. Um, and and with know, virtual I mean,
1: reality, you could transport yourself into Star Trek yeah
0: exactly absolutely Absolutely. right so we get what we don't know to ask for what we ask for is usually cheaper faster better uh and what we get is something entirely in a different trajectory than what we what we thought we would get
1: absolutely so talk to me a little bit because from a marketing perspective we all know about brand loyalty and you talk about how ai and all this behavioral data will create loyal brands what's different in this world how is that different
0: yeah, so I love this concept of, of the loyal brand because it sort of turns, you know, what you and I grew up with on its on its head. You and I grew up with this notion of being brand loyal, and we all brand. kind of know what that means, right? You, you like a brand because it has a certain value proposition. There's something about the brand which attracts you to it and sort of, you know, maintains that, that loyalty. But it was very much a one-way street because I wasn't Tom to Colgate or, to, you know, to P&G or to BMW or whatever brand – uh, I might associate myself with, I was a buyer, part of the demographic. Uh, they never knew me as an individual. They couldn't. It would be, you know, cost prohibitive right. to know me as an individual in the past. What's happened? You know, today, Tesla knows my every behavior when I'm in that car, and they have oh, yeah. a repository of who I am, how I drive, where I go, when I go, and all of that, as we were saying earlier, can be used through AI algorithms, to predict my my behavior. But it can also be used to customize the product, to hyper-personalize it to my experiences. So you're not selling me a car anymore. You're selling me the experience of transportation. And because you know me and understand me, you can customize that experience in in myriad ways to conform to my behaviors. What you create, if you do that, and if you don't do it in a creepy fashion, because we've all seen the creepy side of of this, is... Is you create a brand that is loyal to me, that understands me, respects my behaviors, and and treats me accordingly. And I'll give you a wonderful example. If you've got a minute, can I talk about Amazon yep. for a second? Because they do they do something really. So here's a really cool thing. Um, and at first, when you first hear this, you will shudder. But hold the thought. Don't don't run away from it as, as quickly as as you want to intuitively. <laughs> So you come home one day and on your front step, you know, whether you live in a condo or a house, whatever, on your front step in front of your door, you find an Amazon box with a smiley face on it and you look at it and you say, hmm, I can't remember ordering anything from from Amazon. I wonder what that is. You open up the box, you look inside and whatever's in there, your thought is immediately, oh my goodness, this is exactly what I needed today. Now, what just happened? Now, first of all, that strikes most people as, well, that's just creepy. I don't want Amazon to know me that well. I get that. I understand that. I, I buy into that. But let's say you had a personal shopper that would do all of your shopping for you, your groceries, your, your, your clothing, you know, your jewelry, everything for your home. That personal shopper would really have to know you very well, right? Because if they knew just a little bit about you, they'd end up making all kinds of bad suggestions, which is right. kind of what we get today on, on Amazon when you, when you interact with them. But once they got to really know you, they'd be indispensable, Because they would create so much more time in your life. You wouldn't have to go, you know, shopping for the necessities of life. You wouldn't have to worry about the fact that you put on a few more pounds and your your pants or your dress doesn't fit you any longer. Or you lost a few pounds and, you know, similarly, your clothes don't fit any longer. They would know you so well that they'd always be right there before you even need to ask for whatever it was that you needed. That's where Amazon wants to go. And that creates enormous value. Today we see it as creepy but, you know, in many ways, it's kind of like going back to the, uh, the general store or the shopkeeper on the, on the corner who knew, knew, knew you and your family so well. that right. When you walked in the door, they knew exactly what you wanted on that day at that time. And that day. So, Absolutely. Uh, that, that that's a yeah. glimpse into what this predictive AI future might, might look like and how our behaviors are going to fuel that sort of, of, of new value creation.
1: And, and I love that because, uh, and I'm a Tesla driver too, so you get in that car and you know, it, you know, it knows where you're going, it knows where you've been, it tells you, you know, That's if you're right. going to come back, how much battery you're going to have left. So we start to get these customized experience where it's for, you know, this is yeah. a uh, an experience for Tom and this is an experience for Linda. And the Amazon thing, I mean, Amazon probably has more data on us than almost anybody because we're all using Prime right. and Alexa, et cetera. Um, and so it does create loyal brands, but it also reinforces that relationship because once Amazon has all that information and can predict what I'm doing, why would I ever go anywhere else, right? I mean, I'm tied exactly. to them because they know me so well.
0: And, and like you said, why would you want to go anywhere else? So it really reinforces this whole notion of having a customer for life. Uh, yep. Because once you have all that data – and by the way, here's the other piece of this which you just touched on. I want to make sure we don't we – don't, uh, just gloss over it, uh, that brand, let's say Tesla, just for sake of argument, that brand knows me so well, and they own that data. There's no portability to the data, and that's a real important piece of this, because ultimately I would like to have that portability, because if I decide to go from Tesla to some other provider of autonomous vehicles, wouldn't it be great to bring all that behavioral data with me? So we haven't yet started asking the question about that, who owns the behavioral data today, it is the technology platform, the provider of the service of the product that owns that, that data, Facebook or Tesla. I don't own it, and yet it's data about me. It's kind of like my medical record, right? right. I, I own that data. It's it's my it's my data. But we haven't quite gotten to that juncture yet. We will. We will. And yep. I think at that point it will be a whole different conversation about uh, what value does this data have and, and who has this data. And, and, by the way, can I now sell it? It's my data. Right. So why can't I sell? Or give
1: it away or do something or, or prevent people from using it. Exactly. That's Which right. Which is sort of what's going on in Europe a little bit. So I want to go back to exactly. something because you talked about before we were all part of this big demographic and, you know, people were, um, you know, we, we might have been um, getting something from, you know, whether it was Thai detergent or, you know, shampoo or, or peanut butter or whatever, but they didn't know us as individuals. And yet companies need to build these scalable business models, right? They wanna grow, they wanna use a similar process because they wanna be able to get efficiencies of scale. And yet, how are they gonna personalize and individualize for Tom and Linda and the millions of other people out there and still get the efficiencies of scale? Isn't there kind of a, a conflict there? What do you see as kind of getting to that point?
0: So what you're – I love the question because what you're now raising is this shift from the industrial-era mindset that we've all been so conditioned and trained and educated in to a post-industrial-era mindset. And I wish I could give it a label other than post-industrial, but (laughs) that's not my job. Someone's going to give this a name. I don't know what it is yet. We'll we'll figure it out in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But but think about this transition. The industrial-era mindset – and we wrote about this in The Bottomless Cloud – was based on scarcity, you know, scarcity of natural resources, yep. scarcity of people, scarcity of plant, equipment, machines, floor space, real estate. All of these were scarcity principles. And we built accounting systems, business models around managing the scarcity. And that's right. where this notion of economies of scale uh, becomes re- relevant because uh, at some point uh, you can do things uh, so cost-effectively because of your scale that you simply could not do. Uh, on, a, on a much smaller scale, providing electricity as a utility company, uh, for example, or being an automotive manufacturer. You can't do these in a small way. You have to do them in a big way. The transition, however, is this is this new mindset. And it's a tough one to, uh, to sort of explain to people because we haven't lived it enough yet. But it's this mindset of abundance thinking. And abundance thinking is based on um, – resources and assets which are fundamentally infinite. And what do I mean by, what could possibly be infinite in this world that we live in? It's a physical world. How can I even say that? Well, data is infinite. Data is math. That's all it is. And we're constantly figuring out ways to store more of it, you know, in, in, in smaller and smaller spaces. And by the way, I know that folks who listen to this are thinking well, wait a minute, you know, there are disk drives and data centers and all these, you know, require power. They do today because we're still approaching much of data storage in a industrial era model. But I'll give you one example of how that's going to change. Quantum computing, which IBM is working on diligently with its its Mm -hmm. Q project. Quantum computers are something so far outside of what we today understand of computing, of how they work and what they can do, that it's almost incomprehensible to uh, sort of make the point. But I'll give you one small anecdote that does make the point. Uh, We talked earlier about modeling biological systems and the effect it might have on genomics and medicine. A single caffeine molecule, which is a very simplistic molecule, uh, has get this over ten to the forty-eighth different quantum states uh, wow. that you need to be able to recognize to model it. So to model how a caffeine molecule works, you need to store ten to the forty-eighth pieces of data. Um, how is that even possible? That the Earth is made up of ten to the fiftieth uh, atoms, right? This, right? this sounds you know ridiculous. But quantum computers enable you to do this. They enable you to achieve efficiencies that are so far beyond our current approach to computing and to to data storage. So, to to answer your question in a a roundabout way, this shift from the industrial era to the post industrial era is going to be based on the fundamental shift from scarcity of resources and assets to this uh, nearly infinite abundance of data, which will become our primary asset through which we build our businesses. And we're seeing that. Uber is a data company. Amazon, right. at the end of the day, is a data company. That, that's what differentiates them. Tesla is a data company. Nike is a data company. This is the way they're building their new ecosystems and their new value. And when it comes to marketing, every company had better be a data company if they expect to survive. You can't compete on virtually any other basis ultimately. Yeah. That is the basis of competition.
1: You're absolutely right, and it's fascinating that we look, we look at this this way. And I, and I think you're right also, we've we've always looked at scarcity. And the fact that, you know, that we can create more data and use it and, and process it and create new ways of looking at it, I think, is something the world has not yet kind of figured out what to do with. So that's this, this right. new opportunity before us. And I hate to keep going back to the negatives, but the other side of this is we keep hearing about cyber attacks and how yes. many businesses that rely on data aren't prepared to handle a cyber attack. So, with all this data out there and more information about your behavior and my behavior and things that are extremely important to me, uh, how do we how do we kind of safeguard that so that the bad actors don't get them?
0: So the bad actors are going to get uh, at that and at us. You know, I teach a course on on leadership, uh, leading the, the cyber organization at Boston University, mm-hmm. which I know you're, you're an alumni uh, as, as, yeah. as you said. Uh, And part of what we focus on is how do you lead businesses that aren't at risk of being attacked but which will be attacked. I mean, every leader has to accept the fact that his or her business will be attacked. It's just a matter of how do you deal with it when you are. And there are defensive measures that you can take, um, but there are also uh, measures that have to do with with how you actually – uh, deal with the repercussions of an attack. You know, how, What kind of transparency do you maintain with uh, with your marketplace, with your customers, with, with media, with government? Uh, it's a very complex set of issues. So the first thing I always tell people is, look, we're not going to get rid of that threat. That will be an omnipresent threat. It will be one that, that's going to be with us for quite some time to come. There is some promise, by the way, uh, in AI and how AI might be able to, to help us in, in a quantum way. To make significant progress in protecting ourselves but at the end of the day i believe we're entering an arms race right the, the bad mm. guys will have ai and so will the good guys and we'll continue to go back and forth in this arms race constantly defending ourselves against every every new threat ultimately what's happening is we are increasing those that live in and work in 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 uh the cyber risk area talk about the attack surface right our attack surface is increasing uh, the Internet of Things, the industrial Internet right. of Things, your thermostat at home, all of these are creating additional nodes, attack vectors, as they're called, through which uh, we can be attacked and, and infiltrated and, and otherwise compromised. That will not go away. So we have to accept that, and understand, there's no magic bullet that's going to that's secure us. What we can do is adopt a new set of behaviors that acknowledge that, understand that threat, and are constantly vigilant of it. That's the best that it's going to get. In the uh, in the near term, will AI change that in a fundamental way and, and make us, you know, bulletproof? Perhaps the quantum computer folks will tell you that quantum computing will do that. Uh, and I could get into the mechanics of that, but they talk about entanglement. Now, entanglement will create these bulletproof, secure systems. I, you know what? I get it, <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think it's an arms race, and we just right. Have to Someone else will have the same system.
1: Same thing with Bitcoin, right? right? We've seen people lose millions it. and billions of dollars on Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly, and blockchain. So, so in other words, what we're saying is, it's an arms race, but but we've got to be in the race. Right? We can't just say, hey, yes. if we don't like it, we're going Thank to go you. hide in under a rock, right?
0: Which yeah. is what, which is, and 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 you hit it square on the head, Linda. When it comes to AI, when it comes to cyber, when it comes to quantum, blockchain, any of these somewhat, you know, obtuse technologies that we hear about. You cannot stay uh, on the sidelines. You've got to be in the game. As painful as it is to, you know, make these changes, adopt these new behaviors, understand these new technologies, you have to be investing in them because, uh, you know, not investing in them, in in my mind, we talked about this in the the bottomless cloud, is is sort of like uh, being at the turn of the last century, you know, the the 20th century, and and saying, you know what, I'm going to ignore electric power. I'll keep my water (laughs) wheel well greased and and lubricated, and that will do pretty well, I think. Um, yeah, I'm going to uh, invest in
1: whips, in, in whips and buggies, right, you know, because that's, exactly, that's the Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. It's a mandate. So, it's a mandate. So here we are, and if we're marketers, and this is all fascinating and it's happening around us, but what should we do today as marketers to kind of be prepared or to, to get involved in this and make sure that we are using it the best we can as the technology continues to develop?
0: so let's let's make it specific. There are three things as a marketer that you absolutely have to be paying attention to. One is how am I leveraging the data I have about my customer and my marketplace in order to create a more hyper personalized experience mm-hmm. um, and And these are simple questions. Uh, some companies simply are not doing that. They are not personalizing because as you said earlier, they see the cost as being an enormous cost the burden that they can't carry uh, but hyper personalization. I think is the easiest, uh, the most effective and and long term, the most sustainable way uh that you can innovate, a product or a service. Because all product and service is moving towards more experiential, uh a more experiential sale and, and approach to marketing. And data allows you to do that. Your understanding of your customer and hyper personalizing mm-hmm. allows you to do that. Uh n- number two, um I said this earlier, it's really important. Uh make sure that you are cognizant of the creep factor, as the more you know about me, the more opportunity you have to market to me, uh, the creepier it can get sometimes. So my healthcare provider is a local hospital here in, in Boston, I won't name them. Outstanding institution, but whenever I have an appointment with my doctor or or a clinician or, you know, to have some diagnosis, a diagnostic tool use or whatever, I get hundred and fifty different reminders. Now I never missed <laughs> an appointment, which both. is good news. Right. Do you really have to send me a reminder, you know, every hour on the hour for the last three days? You know, that's that's the creep factor I'm talking about. So make sure you're using the 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 data in a way that's respectful and acknowledges the 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 customer uh, um, and not just, you know, holding them to a certain uh, a certain process and and a certain and a certain rigor. And, And number three, you said it earlier. Take every opportunity to jump into the game, to learn about AI, to learn what the best practices are, what's working, what's not working. Experiment with it. Um, uh, actually, you know, bring these technologies in-house as best you can, given your resources and your budget, so that you can begin to work with them and understand the nuance. At the end of the day, even those complex technologies do boil down to some fairly you know, simple and understandable basics. If you haven't gotten to that point, if, if you feel it's still obtuse, if you feel it's still Outside of your reach, you haven't gotten those basics. It's because you're not using it. You're not getting the hands-on experience that you need to truly understand how the technology works. And there's, you can't make up for that. I mean, you either have that or you don't. Uh, and you can buy talent, but even that requires your understanding fundamentally what kind of, of talent, what talent you What talent you'll
1: get, sure, yeah. Exactly, Absolutely. exactly.
0: So stay, stay in the game. Take every opportunity you can to uh, to stay in the game.
1: That's fantastic. We're here talking with to Tom Koopoulos. He's the chairman of uh, the Boston Global Innovation Think Tank Delphi Group and the author of The Bottomless Cloud. Tom, if people wanted to find out more about you and what you do, where should they go?
0: So, me, it's easy. Go to tkspeaks.com. That's my website. If they want to find out more about The Bottomless bottomless Cloud, they can just go to thebottomlesscloud.com, and the book is available on on Amazon and, and all your favorite booksellers. Are there others besides Amazon? I don't know.
1: <laughs> there must be someone somewhere <laughs> still. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Thomas. It's been a pleasure. God, you know, Now I feel I have to go out and really immerse myself in this immediately so I don't get any further behind. But thank you so much for being here.
0: You're very welcome, Linda. Thank you for having me.
1: Until next time, this is Linda Popke. Thank you for listening to Marketing Thought Leadership.
0: We hope you enjoyed this edition of Marketing Thought Leadership, brought to you by L2M Associates. If you'd like to find out how you can improve the return on your investment in marketing programs, processes, or people, contact us at www.l2massociates.com.